for uh, giving for setting up that worship set. You, you may not know it, but the uh, I really want the people who were scheduled to do certain things to still participate in those. Um, so I think it was Ben last week that chose our worship set. John this week chose our worship set. Betty will choose our our worship set next week. And thank you, John, for for choosing the high church version of When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross. Uh, when he sent me the worship list, uh, the worship set this week, I, I saw all the titles and I know all the songs and I made the playlist, but I didn't preview any of it. And so I didn't realize that he, he did the, the high church, the choir, and maybe there was a pipe organ even in uh, in there, that, that version of When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross. Uh, that's great. Thank you, John, for doing that. It actually helps us do things that we can't do. You know, we don't have uh, we don't have choir. We don't have choir space up here. We don't have a pipe organ or anything like that. Uh, so anyway, we were able to, to to worship in a high church way the the way that we we uh, normally can't. And it's really not our style anyway. But uh, I still appreciated that. Uh, so Betty, you be thinking uh, this next week uh, about all the songs that you uh, wish we that you wish you could play that you wish we could sing. Uh, and uh, send that, uh, that list to me this week as well. And I would encourage all of you um, to interact with each other in the comment sections of the playlists or under the, the live video. Um, try to interact with each other. Try to make this as, uh, as interactive as can be and not just people watching a video. Uh, a lot of churches, a lot of people are, are recording a sermon and then playing it, and I think that that makes a very nice polished professional presentation, but I, I really want to keep doing the live thing because I want this to be interactive at this time uh, each week. So anyway, uh, there's, there's that. And uh, in keeping with trying to keep things as normal, usual as, as we can, next week we're going to take communion. So there will be a, a communion portion. Uh, so this week, uh, if you go to the grocery store or whatever you've got, uh, maybe if you're not going to go to the grocery store, look in all your all all of your pantry there and 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 save one cracker, save one cracker for next week, and it can be any cracker you want. It can be a, a better tasting cracker than we normally use here. Uh, you can use whatever bread you've got. Um, and use whatever juice you've got. If you've got juice, if you don't have juice, if you go to the grocery store this week, be sure to get a little thing of juice. Um, I'll, uh, I'll let you have anything. Anything counts except Capri Sun. No Capri Sun, all right? It's got to be different juice than that. Uh, and if you don't have any juice, whatever, don't worry about that. Uh, just take some water. I'll give you permission to do that. Jesus changed the water into nice uh, grape juice, didn't he? Uh, so anyway, uh, you can take whatever you've got, uh, uh, and, and we'll still remember the Lord's sacrifice next week in communion, okay? So be prepared for that next week when you join us. All right, it's time for the congregational prayer now, and uh, Caroline Carnes was scheduled to give that this week. She, uh, she didn't want to do the, the live video, and that's, that's perfectly understandable. Um, and so she sent me uh, this adaptation from the Book of, of Common Prayer uh, to pray with you. So please bow your heads and let's pray together now. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for all your gifts and graces to us this day, for the splendor of the whole creation and the beauty of this world, for the wonder of life and the mystery of love, for the blessings of family and friends and the loving care that surrounds us on every side. Deliver us from the service of self alone that we may do the work you have given us to do in beauty, in truth, and for the common good, for the sake of the one 
who comes among us as one who serves and who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now forever. We offer prayers for the welfare of the world and for all the people in their daily life and work. And right now we know that all of that has been disrupted. So Lord, give us new daily life and work to do, a new rhythm, a new routine, new work, new tasks, if we cannot do the tasks we had before. And we offer prayers for all who hold authority and for all who work for health and peace. We pray for doctors. We pray for nurses. We pray for uh, CNAs, people who work in nursing homes. We pray for caseworkers. We pray for the food pantry workers, all those, Lord, who are trying to contribute to the health and peace uh, of our community. And we pray for all who suffer and for all who remember and care for them. We pray, Lord, especially this week for, one, for so, some of those in our midst. We pray for Tina Padawan, who has just gone through a very delicate surgery. And we pray that you will strengthen her, get her back to recovery. We pray for those who are still going through cancer treatment. And Diane comes to mind, Maggie Carter, others, Lord, who are going through cancer treatment. Lord, please heal them, strengthen them, bolster their immune systems, Lord. We pray also for the United States, who is experiencing this quarantine and this infection. We pray for Italy, Spain, Iran, other countries whose numbers of infections and death rates are going up. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Give us the hem of your garment so that we can touch it and be healed. And we pray for all those in whom we have seen Christ this day, those who are serving in our worship service in joy and in sorrow. I thank you for those who have commented, those who have contributed. Thank you for Stacy. Thank you for Sam. Thank you for Caroline. Thank you for John. Those who have worship, uh, contributed to our worship today. Help us to do these things in joy and even when we have sorrow. And we end, Lord, by giving thanks. Thanks be to God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. And we go in peace to serve you, Lord. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ go with us all. And may those to whom, he, uh, to whom love is a stranger find in us generous friends. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So open your Bibles, please. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Uh, we're going to be... This is, we're entering the Easter season, uh, and today is not one of those holy days. Holy Week starts next week on Sunday, and it's Palm Sunday, and then after that, Friday is Good Friday, and we'll still have our Tenebrae service here, uh, just like we would have, and it'll still just be online uh, like this, and then we'll have Easter uh, after that. And I, I, I think we should all brace ourselves for the idea that we cannot get together for Easter this year. Um, maybe something will change. I, I have no idea. I hope so, but if it doesn't, uh, we'll still just meet like this on Easter. Uh, and if that's the case, uh, what we'll do is once everything is over, once everything is back to normal, once, every, once we can gather again like this, 
Um, we'll get together as a church and we will declare Easter on some certain day. We'll declare Easter in June. We'll declare Easter in July. Whatever it takes, we will declare an Easter and you'll get to wear your bonnet and your flowery dress and um, make your ham and everything like that. We will just uh, designate a day to be Easter if we can't actually gather on Easter. Um, so, But today we're going to be uh, beginning our run-up to Easter. Uh, and the, the theme that I have for it this year, the theme that I have for it this, this year came from some reading that I did in a, uh, a book by Tim Keller. Tim Keller is one of the best authors and, and speakers around, best Christian thinker, in, at least in the English language, uh, I think. Um, and so if you, if you get a chance to, to Google some, some of his material on YouTube, um, sermons, uh, talks that he's given at conferences. His talks at conferences are just really great and practical. Um, read some of his books. Uh, I would in highly encourage you to do some of that. But I was reading a book called Jesus the King, and in it he talked about, uh, he used a literary device or alluded to a literary device called uh, the U-catastrophe. And he, he, he sort of juxtaposed these two things, the catastrophe and the U-catastrophe. So what is the catastrophe and the U-catastrophe? U-catastrophe, by the way, is spelled E-U-C-A-T-A-S. So it's, it's all one word, U-catastrophe. It's just catastrophe with E-U on the end. Uh, and uh, and that, what that word does is it turns it around and it makes it not a catastrophe. It makes it a good thing. It makes it a good thing. Uh, so there's the catastrophe and the eucatastrophe. And it, you'll, you'll remember it. It's, it's, always, it's in the gospel. And, and any movie or other story that has ever been written in English um, that uses a catastrophe and a eucatastrophe really is an allusion to uh, the cross and the resurrection. It is a, a reference to Christ. My father-in-law has said it many times. and He's probably not the first person to say it, but he's the first person I heard say it, is that any great story just reflects the greatest story ever told. And so um, in, the, in the cross uh, and in the, in the resurrection, you have the catastrophe. And the cross is this catastrophe. It is the lowest point in human history. And then after that, you have the catastrophe, which is the moment when it all becomes untrue. And so you'll find in certain movies, uh, maybe an action movie, uh, just think of the greatest action movie. There's some sort of uh, big war going on, some big battle. Uh, and the hero, the guy that was going to save us all, uh, was in the plane that went down. Or he was in the building that collapsed. Or he fell off the cliff or whatever. And everybody else who had been putting their hope in him now is at the lowest point they could possibly imagine. They're at the point where they say, oh no, um, we're all going to die. If, if he didn't make it, none of us can make it. Uh, something like that. And then all of a sudden, uh, at this lowest point, when everybody is sitting around um, lamenting and talking about how they wish things had been different, then guess what? He emerges. You see a hand come out of the burning building or over the cliff, something like that. And all of a sudden, he's alive again. The hero's alive again and hope is alive again. And we come back and the great victory uh, is won. Um, to uh, Tim Keller would be proud of me because I'm going to quote Lord of the Rings. He's a big fan of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. But uh, you remember at the very end of Return of the King, when um, Aragorn and, uh, and, and all of his folks, all the, all the, the folks of Middle-earth, come to the Black Gate, uh, that, which is the entry into Mordor, the, the, the hellish land of Mordor. And Frodo is in there somewhere, and he's going to take the ring and throw it into the volcano and, and destroy evil for good. Um, but obviously Frodo is, is, is not there yet, and 
we need to buy him some time. Uh, so Aragorn says, what we're all going to do is we're going to sacrifice ourselves so that he can finish his job. We're all going to die, and, and he's going to be able to finish the job. And we won't even know if the job gets finished or not. Well, on the inside of, of Mordor, um, Frodo and Sam are going through their own catastrophe. It looks like Frodo is not going to throw the, the ring into the volcano. It looks like Gollum is going to get the ring. It looks like Sauron's going to get the ring. It looks like all these terrible things are going to happen. And then Aragorn, back out here at the Black Gate, he just takes out his sword and he looks at the people and he says, for Frodo. And he starts running and everybody starts running after him and they get surrounded by this incredible army uh, and that's just about to annihilate them. And then all of a sudden, the ring is thrown into the volcano and everything is... Uh, all evil is destroyed, and all of the armies that were about to destroy them are all swallowed up in the earth. It was the absolute lowest point. We didn't know if the ring was going to get destroyed. We didn't know if Aragorn and everybody else, all the heroes there were going to get destroyed. And then all of a sudden, the catastrophe that was, or that was about to be, is all of a sudden over. And it is the greatest moment of triumph. Evil has finally been destroyed. And that is what you have uh, in the story of the, the cross, the, the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection. The absolute worst thing that could have ever happened, the greatest moment of hopelessness in all humanity is um, turned around and turned into the greatest victory uh, of, of heaven and earth. And so that is the catastrophe and the catastrophe. Uh, and so today I'm going to be talking about that a little bit. Each week I'm going to be talking about that a little bit, how the uh, the catastrophe was there. The most terrible thing, the most terrible reality is right in front of us. And then it's all of a sudden turned around and turned into the greatest thing ever. Um, and so today we're going to be looking at the triumphal, the triumphal entry, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But I want to give a little bit of background. I, I, it's not like I'm going to read the whole uh, chapter and it's not like I'm going to read all the chapters before it. I just want you to know what we've been running up towards. Okay. Um, this is uh, what's happened is Jesus has been ministering in Galilee and other places, even Tyre and Sidon. And every year he goes to Jerusalem. But in this third year of his ministry, he's been doing all these things, these wonderful things in, in all the area of Galilee and the north of, of Israel. And then he turns his face like stone towards Jerusalem because it's time. It's time to wage the great battle. It's time to go in and it's time to die. And he tells his, his uh, disciples several times, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. We're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And they never really get it. But it starts building this tension. It starts building this tension uh, with Jesus and with, um, and with the disciples and with everybody around. And Jesus has been preaching such good news for so long. Uh, but as he starts on his way to Jerusalem, in every town where he stops or in every place where he goes, every place where there's some more teaching... I think you can start to feel the, the tension building in him. It's not happy-go-lucky Jesus. It's Jesus who is confronting people. And he's always been a confronter. But boy, is, is he ratcheting up the pressure. He starts out, say, in chapter 14, the cost of being disciple. If you want to follow me, any of you want to follow me. Now, in the beginning, he was just saying, follow me, follow me. You're going to see some amazing things. You're going to hear some amazing teaching. But in chapter 14 here, he looks at everybody and says, follow me. Take up your cross. We're all going to go and we're all going to die. Or how about this? Follow me. You have to, your love for me, your devotion to me has to look like 
like you hate everybody else. It has to look like you care about nobody else or, or nothing else. You only care about me. You're only devoted to me. You're only following me. And anybody who doesn't take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. My goodness. He's really ratcheting up the, the pressure there. And then he goes on and he starts um, uh, confronting certain, uh, say, uh, individuals and telling, telling, um, uh, telling uh, parables that really confront certain individuals. Okay, so uh, in chapter 18, he tells this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And everybody hates tax collectors and Pharisees are always seen as good people. But he really turns that on its head and says, uh, any tax collector who knows that they're a sinner is better than any Pharisee who does not know that they're a sinner, who does not want my forgiveness, who, know, who doesn't think they need forgiveness. Any, any tax collector who knows that they're a sinner is better off than any Pharisee who doesn't think that they're a sinner. And then here comes uh, the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler comes and says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And, uh, and he, he thought he was righteous. And Jesus sends him away quite sorrowful, quite sorrowful. You want to be my disciple? You want to get into heaven? Throw away everything. Give it to the poor. They, and, and, and throw off every obstacle that would, that, would, that would be in front of you to become my disciple. That's how extreme you have to get. And then he says this. He, he, it's an incredible statement. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, and, and so what he's saying is the biggest animal you've ever seen, uh, it's easier for them to go through the smallest opening in the world than for somebody like him to get into the kingdom of heaven, to be my disciple, to go to heaven when they die. Uh, Jesus is really ratcheting up the pressure, tightening the sort of narrowing the way even, I would, I would say. And remember then that, that, that parable about the, the tax collector and the Pharisee? He tells that, and everybody's pretty aghast. Oh, really? That's the way it is? God will forgive the tax collectors at all? You mean the Pharisees still need forgiveness? I don't understand that. I never thought that way. And then Jesus comes and actually lives that parable out with Zacchaeus. As he comes into Jericho, and this is not Jerusalem. He's not even in Jerusalem yet. He comes into Jericho. He heals somebody on the way into Jericho. And then he gets into Jericho and he sees Zacchaeus. And he says, and I'm, I'm, I'm maybe putting words in his mouth, but I'm, I'm thinking he's saying, I don't know if they understood that, that tax collector and Pharisee parable. Let me just live it out. Hey, Zacchaeus, you tax collector, you one that everybody hates, you betrayer of Israel. Let's go to your house. I'm going to talk to you today. And then Zacchaeus, uh, because he experiences the grace and truth of God, he repents he gets forgiveness, and they, he lives out the parable that Jesus told just a couple of chapters earlier. And, and guess what? The Pharisees are indignant, and Jesus is just turning things on its head, and he's getting so mad. He's getting so mad at people who still don't get it, and he doesn't have much time left. It's less than a week before he is crucified, and then shortly after that resurrection, and shortly after that ascended and gone. He is ratcheting up the pressure because they still don't get it. And then we come into chapter 19, and we're not going to read this parable. Uh, you know the parable of the talents from, from uh, Matthew, okay? It's a very well-known, it's a very well-known parable. I encourage you to read it, the, the, the version of it that's in chapter 19, because he adds a nuance to it in chapter 19 of Luke here, because he talks about a nobleman who's going to receive a kingdom and become king. Now, in their day, in their day, um, this was sort of a, a, a reality because you had, um, you had the emperor, Caesar Augustus, or uh, 
Tiberius at this point, I believe, is the emperor. Okay? He is the emperor. And, um, but there are kings under him. And who's the king of, of, of Judea at this time? Uh, it's Herod the Great. It's Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, of course, is a, uh, is a ruthless tyrant. He's a terrible person. And all of Israel has rejected him as their king. They're actually waiting for the Messiah to come, kick the Romans out, and overthrow Herod and become the, somebody to come become the rightful king. Uh, but they understand this idea that a, a nobleman goes to a far country to receive a crown and authority over a certain region. And they also understand that uh, when he comes back, if it's a forced kingdom, well, not everybody is going to accept him as their king, even if they have to knuckle under and just do whatever, whatever the king says. He's not really their king. They're not re- they really pay him no allegiance whatsoever. And so the parable of the talents and then that fact all are overlaid with each other here in, in chapter 19. And just read the last verse of this, um, the last verse of this parable in chapter 19, verse 27. And Jesus is not talking about Herod here. He's actually starting to talk about himself, that here I am and I've come from far away. And the God of the universe is giving me a crown and here I am returning to my people to receive the kingdom for me. And how will they accept me? That's the big question. How will they accept me as their king? And uh, he, of course, foreknows what's going to happen. He knows that he's going to be rejected as, as the king, as the Messiah for Israel. And look at the last line of this, uh, of this parable. Chapter 19, verse 27. And I'm reading in the New Living Translation. He says, as for these enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. Can you feel the tension being ratcheted up? Jesus isn't just talking about the mysteries of the kingdom anymore. He's talking about things that are right about to happen. And he's using very extreme language, I think, and shocking probably. He's always had uh, some shock when, uh, with the crowds. He's always, they've always been amazed at his teaching. Now I think they're sitting there wide-eyed and stupefied saying, what in the world is he talking about? Why this tension? Why is this, this happening? And those who, who do recognize him as the Messiah are saying, that's right, we're going to go in here and he's going to make us execute a bunch of people. But then he's not. What a mysterious thing. All right. So here we are in, in Luke chapter 19, and we're going to start reading in verse 28. Let's pray, and then let's enter into this story Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Help us to see the story and enter into the story. See ourselves in the story, in the crowds there that day. Teach us, Holy Spirit, what we need to be learning from all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. So starting in verse 28. After telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, He sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it and, uh, for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. 
when, the, when, they, when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. All right. So the catastrophe and the eucatastrophe. Today I'm actually going to switch it around. It's the eucatastrophe that becomes a catastrophe. It's the good thing, the victory, that becomes uh, a tragedy and a terrible thing. What we have here, uh, it starts out with this great celebration. And this entourage that Jesus has is people who have followed him all the way from Galilee all the way down here. And they've seen miracles along the way. And they've heard great teaching all along the way. And his entourage from Galilee is just growing because people are going anyway. Might as well travel with Jesus, the greatest rabbi that there is. And you'll see amazing things and you'll hear amazing things all along the way. And then as they get to the Mount of Olives, uh, I think it's interesting. Uh, uh, I always think it's interesting when I see Jesus sort of stopping and pausing and saying, Oh, the Father's got something for me to fulfill here. The Father's got something for me to do here. Uh, because there are all these prophecies and things about Jesus that he knows. And I think when the Holy Spirit prompts him, when the God the Father prompts him to do something, he'll have a moment and he'll say, let's do this. It's time. It's time for that. And so he sent the, the disciples ahead and said, Go find a donkey. You're going to find a donkey. Trust me. The father has told me you're going to find a donkey there. Go find the donkey. And somebody may even put a, try to put an obstacle in front of you. But God will not be stopped. God's sovereignty will not be stopped. He is sovereign over the situation. He wants this to be fulfilled right now. So just tell them the Lord needs it. And they'll just say, oh, yeah, okay, all right, take whatever you want if the Lord needs it. And so they'll take, you, you'll take the donkey and you'll bring it back here. And then he gets on it. And then at that point, I think everybody around starts to get it. Because they know these passages. They know all of these prophecies in the Old Testament. And this comes from Zechariah chapter 9. And in Zechariah chapter 9, you have the Lord prophesying a great victory for his people. You have the Lord uh, prophesying that he will topple all of the enemies and a new king will come, a new king will be enthroned. But that king won't be like all the other kings of the world. This king will be a gentle and loving king because all kings are, are oppressive people with a God complex, right? That's, that every king they've ever experienced is just like that. Uh, but here, uh, you're going to get a different kind of king, humble, riding on a donkey. And so when Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives and they bring the donkey to him and he gets on it, and they start seeing it because Jesus walked everywhere he went. Uh, he, he's not the type to ride a donkey. And he's not the type to just get tired feet all of a sudden. And so they bring it and they get him on it. And I think everybody around says, oh my goodness, it's the Zechariah pro- passage. It's the Zechariah prophecy. He's doing it right here in front of us. He's the king. He is signaling to us that he is the Messiah, that he's the gentle one that's going to come in and do all of these amazing things. God's judgment is coming on all of our enemies, on all the rulers of the world. This is amazing. We're seeing it here right before our eyes. Uh, so not only have they heard great teaching and not only have they seen miracles, they're seeing him do something Messiah-like. He is making a statement right here. I am the Messiah. I'm doing what the Messiah does. And so the celebration just gets riotous. And here they come. All these Galileans praising the Lord, singing psalms with the one that they believe is the Messiah. And they're right. He is the Messiah. 
And here he comes into Jerusalem and they're saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. Save. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. I love that word so much that one of my children has the middle name Hosanna. Because I want God to save. And I want her to carry the name of God's salvation with her everywhere she goes. And anytime somebody says, where did you get that middle name? It is an opening for her right there to share the gospel that Jesus saves. And then later, Jesus comes up to my type. And this is the, the thing that punches me in the gut so much. If you're not clergy, when you read about the Pharisees and Sadducees, you just think about very self-righteous people. But when I read about the Pharisees and Sadducees, when I th- read about the, the priestly class of people, the scribes and all that, it also has to hit me very personally because I'm clergy. They're clergy. And shouldn't the clergy see it before everybody else? Shouldn't the clergy No, shouldn't the clergy understand? Shouldn't the Bible scholars all get it right? But it doesn't happen that way. In fact, I think in the Bible, it rarely happens that way. And so I often feel I'm in a dangerous position. I'm I'm Christian leadership. I'm I'm in a a religious position. I'm in a real, maybe disadvantage sometimes as far as what the Bible says. Because the Pharisees came up to him, and they said, Hey, hey, peer, you're my peer. You're no better than me. I'm a rabbi, you're a rabbi, I'm a Pharisee, you're a Pharisee, blah, blah, blah. You and me need to have a talk because we're on equal footing. That's the way they see Jesus. And you need to stop this because this is only for the Messiah, and that's not you. That's the way they see Jesus. Every time they approach Jesus, they see a peer, whereas everybody else who comes to Jesus sees somebody that they need to bow before. That is very important for clergy to remember. That when Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus, they either see an upstart who is below them or a peer who is like them. They never come to him and say, here is somebody I ought to bow before. Here is somebody who's higher than me. All the common people, everybody else, they see somebody that they should bow before. And they're blessed because they do. They're blessed because they'll listen. But the Pharisees, Sadducees, leadership types, clergy types, they come to him with condemnation. And Jesus tells them something. Hey, if they don't praise me, the rocks will praise me. I know you're not going to praise me, but if they don't praise me, the rocks will praise me. Because uh, the heavens and the earth will praise the Lord. And if all the living things that I've created to praise me don't praise me, then the non-living things will praise me. And what a tragedy there. That is where we come from, eucatastrophe to catastrophe. The eucatastrophe, the good thing, the high point starts at the beginning of this story. The one you've been hoping for is here. The, one, the thing you've been hoping for is now. The time you've been hoping for is now. Jesus is coming in. Why in the world would you reject him? The one you've been hoping for, praying for, hoping to see, waiting to see, asking God to bring into the world is here. And he's going to disrupt. You want him to disrupt. He's going to take the throne. You want him to take the throne. But then you have to find out how much you're willing to surrender. And maybe that's the thing that is the obstacle. When I find just how devoted 
and how humble I have to be before a king, maybe that's when the pride ticks up and the catastrophe comes that the one I've been hoping and waiting for that's right in front of me, I reject. That can happen. It happened several times in the Bible. The rich young ruler, it happened. He came to Jesus knowing that here's the, here's the guy that has all the answers I ever wanted. But the catastrophe is he didn't like the answer. Remember when Jesus told the parable of the sower? You want things to sprout up. You want things to grow. You, you want things to produce fruit. But what about those worries and cares? What about the fact that you won't let yourself get rooted in the faith? What about those things? Those things turn into people who had some enthusiasm, had some belief, had some faith. But then, when Jesus really started to become Lord of their life, they decided, I don't want a Lord for my life. If it means giving up this, if it means changing this, if it means thinking this way, I don't know that I want a Lord of my life. And Jesus warns them, you can lose more than you thought you would if you reject the hope uh, and the salvation that God offers. Because look at verse 41. As Jesus came closer to Jerusalem, he saw the city ahead and he began to weep. How I wish today of all Today that you of all people would understand the way of peace. But now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. You see, when you reject Jesus, when you rebuke Jesus, when you tell Jesus, hey, you've, you've gone far enough. Well, you start to lose. You start to lose more than you thought you would. And the, the center of the earth and the temple of praise right there, God had declared that if this city will not bear my name, and if this temple will not bear my name, then ouch. It will be taken from you. And so embracing the Christian life, embracing Jesus as Lord, embracing Jesus as Savior and friend, that's a good thing. But after a while, if you cease to let him be Lord, if you cease to praise him, if you cease to let him transform your life like he wants to, then you will start to lose. And you lose more than you ever thought you could lose uh, from the beginning. So don't let something or someone steal your opportunity to praise. Do not let any, your own pride or your own uh, addictions or your own desires steal your chance to be someone who is known as one who praises the Lord. And don't let a rock take, take your place. Praise the Lord. Abide in Jesus. When times are good, abide in Jesus. When times are hard, abide in Jesus. When Jesus is pushing you farther than you thought he would push you, abide in Jesus. Every time you are tempted to walk away because it's too hard, don't abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Don't walk away. If you stay with him, if you abide with him, 
What does he promise in John chapter 15? He promises, you'll bear fruit. Stick with me, you'll bear fruit. Surrender your pride, you'll bear fruit. Surrender your misunderstanding, you'll bear, bear fruit. Surrender your addictions. Surrender the lifestyle that you have. You'll bear fruit. Put it all aside. Embrace me as king. Put me on the throne. Don't try to push me off the throne. Be humble and praise me in the good times and the bad. And the rocks won't replace you. The rocks will be jealous that you get to praise the Lord and they don't. Okay? This is the triumphal entry. Let Jesus enter triumphantly into your life. Keep him there. Abide in him. Cling to him. He will never leave. Praise him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you have come into the world. You have come into our lives if we just believe in you. And Lord, help us to surrender all to you. Help us to surrender all pride, surrender all other desires, surrender misunderstanding, surrender it all, cling to you, abide in you, and show us, Lord, just how we will bear fruit if we do. We pray that you'll give us the grace to make it through this week, another week uh, in isolation, another week of social distancing. Lord, we pray for countries in the world where it's even harder. We pray for New York. We pray for Washington. Lord, please help us to endure this time. Endure it well. Praise your name throughout. Help us to abide in you during this difficult time. And Lord, show us the fruit that we can bear during this time. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.